In this episode of 9 to Y Talks, two of the country's foremost leadership experts and best-selling authors, Arthur Brooks of the American Enterprise Institute and Simon Sinek, share the advice they offer leading policymakers and executives and explain why uncovering our why is the key to greater effectiveness and personal happiness. The conversation was recorded on January 9th, 2018, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Honored is for me uh, to be here with you and to introduce my friend Simon Sinek uh, very shortly. Um, I'm Arthur Brooks. I'm president of the American Enterprise Institute. It's an honor to be here. You just heard that this is not my first time at the 92nd Street Y. It occurred to me um, just earlier this week that it was, in fact, 34 years ago that I made my, my New York debut as a classical musician um, here at the 92nd Street Y. It was the, the, the other hall. Um, and, it, and, and I have to say, it was such a thrill uh, to do that then. And, how lovely it is to come back now. Um, life has changed an awful lot. I'm, I'm the president of a think tank now. I spent my 20s after dropping out of college, or you know, dropped out, kicked out, splitting hairs, and, uh, <clears throat> and went on the road as a musician all the way through my 20s. I went back and became a, an economist, which is what I do now. Um, interestingly, the comparison between 34 years ago and tonight sort of comes to a head. People often ask, what does classical music have to do with public policy and leadership and social science and economics? And I often wonder that myself. I was uh, hosting a, a large gala dinner in Washington, D.C., a huge event for 2,000 people uh, two years ago. Um, the guest of honor was Benjamin Netanyahu. It's very controversial. Um, there were protesters outside. It was Awesome. And, and we were, um, after the dinner, it had gone incredibly well, and I had hired a band to play. And I was, they were packing up their instruments at the end of the night. It was 11 o'clock at night. And, and I was feeling good about myself because it had gone so well. And the drummer came down off the bandstand, and he came walking up to me, and he said, are you, are you Arthur Brooks, the French horn player? And I said, yeah, yeah. And I recognized him. It turned out it was the, uh, the drummer, a drummer that I had made two records with in the 1980s. I said, how you doing? Wow. And he says, are you the president of all of this now? And I said, yes, I am. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, what happened to you, man? <clears throat> so that's what I'm asking myself tonight. <clears throat> but I'm really thrilled, I have to say, because this is uh, an opportunity for me to have a conversation with somebody I have really come to love. Simon Sinek. Simon Sinek is a best-selling author. His uh, most famous book, to many of you, is is uh, is, uh, is is I mean, it's it's out it's out in the lobby. You're going to get it later, I'm sure. He he's an expert in the subject of the why of your life. Start with why. His most uh, his most recent book is Find Your Why. He also wrote Leaders Eat Last, which I highly recommend to your interest. Um, he, I think he has four books in the works. He's working on one that we're going to talk about tonight. He's incredibly uh, productive uh, as an intellectual. He's a consultant to some of the world's most important organizations. He describes himself as an optimist. I'm going to ask him why on earth he's an optimist. Um, Simon was born in the UK. He's lived in South Africa, Hong Kong, and by far, most exotically, in New Jersey. Um, he attended Brandeis University in the City University of London. He got his start in marketing, but quickly found his way to understanding the human heart, which is what he talks about for his living today. Many of you know him because Simon became a, an, almost an overnight celebrity in 2009 when his TED Talk, How Great Leaders Inspire Action, went pretty viral. It is the third most watched TED Talk of all time with 36 
million views. And now you're going to see him in person right here at the 92nd Street Y. Ladies and gentlemen, my friend, Simon Sinek. Hi, Simon. Hi, Arthur. It's nice to see you. And this, I'm, I can't actually see out into this audience because of the lights, but I'm sure that there are probably people in those seats. Yes. And they're, and they're delighted to see you as well. Um, we have a lot to talk about, and we have plenty of time to hear from our, from our guests as well. Um, but I want to start right in. Look, I mean, it's one of the most amazing things. Before I met you for the first time, I had seen your TED Talk, and I looked you up, and I saw on your biography that you're an optimist. And then I got to meet you for the first time, and we were... It was actually before we, sh we shared the stage. It was where, where were we? We were giving the first we were the time we met. Yes, we met in a. It was right after Donald Trump was elected. Uh, we <laughs> there, there, there was a big conservative. Um, Look out! This is a big right wing crowd. So uh, be careful yeah. with what you say here. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I'm an infiltrator, so yeah. that's why I say yes to all gigs. I promote um, bipartisanship, so I say yes to both sides. Um, but we, I don't know why I was invited, but we were, th there were four speakers at this big Republican offsite with all the congressmen, all the senators, all the lobbyists, and the speakers on day two were Donald Trump and Mike Pence, and the speakers on day one were us. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's, and, 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 and I heard Simon speak, and he is an optimist, yet paradoxically, the topic of Simon's speech to Every Republican in the House and Senate was the malaise in American leadership. Was it leadership is in crisis, that trust is low and happiness is falling, particularly when we think about our leaders. And, and you start, when you talk about public trust, when you talk about happiness falling, you start with culpability at the very top. You talk about this crisis in leadership. So that's where I want to start. What is the problem? Not about politics per se. What's the problem of American leadership today, Simon? So yeah, we do have a, a leadership crisis, uh, predominantly because um, people who hold positions of leadership are not actually leaders. They just hold positions of leadership and they just happen to have authority. And I think this has been, this is not an overnight thing. This has been a steady decline, a steady move since probably the 80s and 90s. Um, uh, there, was a, there was a huge shift that happened in the 80s and 90s and we can go back further, back to World War II as to how we got there, but that's, I don't have to go back that far. You know, there were some there were some new experiments that were happening in the 80s and 90s. Where we were moving from a we to a me kind of mentality. Gordon Gecko, greed is good kind of thing. So, for example, um, we saw in business the introduction of something called shareholder supremacy, where we put the interests of the shareholder ahead of the employees or the customer, which was a theory proposed in the late 1970s, popularized in the 80s and 90s by folks like Jack Welch at GE. We saw um, the introduction of mass layoffs, where mass layoffs were used, um, became, it became normalized that we would use mass layoffs on an annualized basis to balance the books. Did not exist in the United States prior to the 1980s. Popularized in the 80s and 90s. Um, and we saw things that happened in government as well and, and in policy, the removal of the fairness doctrine, um, uh, for example, where left and right opinions had to be given equal time on television. The FCC removed that standard. Um, so it, it could become unbalanced. Um, and we saw all of these shifts that happened in these very, very prosperous times, these boom years of the 80s and 90s of great relative peace. Um, it wasn't a Republican or a Democrat thing because we had Reagan and we had Clinton. Um, but we saw this, this steady move. 
Um, unfortunately, um, we no longer live in uh, those kinds of times, boom years. We no longer live in a time of relative peace. And a lot of the theories that worked well then just don't work anymore. In other words, we built systems for government and politics and, all of, uh, and, and for business for, for calm waters, only calm waters. And you can't judge the quality of a crew by how they perform in calm waters, but rather how they perform in rough waters. And, the, and so what we have now are people who grew up in those times who are now leading government and business, and they're still trying to use leadership of the past to manage the, the current day, and it just doesn't work. Um, and we, we can see the effect. Um, I don't think that, um, I, th I don't think anybody should be surprised that a man with the personality of Donald Trump um, is the President of the United States. It's just sort of a, it's sort of a steady move in that direction. Um, we see the same kind of mentality inside businesses where, um, again, I mean, my, my pet peeve of mass layoffs, um, where you have CEOs announcing mass layoffs to balance the books to appease an external constituency, which to me is madness, and quite frankly, bad for business. This is the great irony. This is the great irony. We've become so short-term focused in business and in politics that we're actually making, we're doing long-term damage. Um, the, and the next question you're going to ask me is, and you're an optimist? Hmm. Well, before I get to that, um, you know, you... <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah, so we have a leadership crisis. The people who are running things are using the wrong, are, are not focused on people. They need to focus on people more. So you give a, uh, you make a large part of your living talking to giving people advice, yeah. giving leaders advice, giving organizations advice on how mm -hmm. they can acquire and retain mm -hmm. better leadership. So we, you know, I learned this from you, Simon, that the best way to teach people relatively nuanced concepts is to tell stories about people who are doing it the right or the wrong way. Yeah. So give me two stories. Give me a story of, you don't have to name names, a leader who did it wrong, yeah. and then tell me about a leader who did it right. Sure. Uh, we can use names. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> they better be dead. No, no, they're <laughs> still in power. Uh, should we do the bad one first? Yes, please. Because so, you know, that's just where my heart uh, is right now. Sure. So IBM a few years ago, uh, missed their quarterly results. And the CEO, Ginny, um, what's her last name? Yes, Jiminy Ramadi. Uh, Ginny Ramadi, uh, in response to the company missing its numbers, um, missing its expectations, made a video, an internal video, that went out to the company, but of course it got leaked. Um, and basically she berated the salespeople for, making, for screwing it up. Right? So imagine being a salesperson at IBM that now everybody, all your colleagues, hear you berated by the CEO. And she went on to say, the problem is, is that you're not pushing information up the chain of command fast enough so that we can make decisions to make sales quicker, which violates every tenet of good leadership. You don't push information up, you push authority down. Right? Now here's the best part. IBM had made its numbers 86 quarters in a row, and this was the first one they ever missed. And she decided that the right thing to do was to berate and criticize and blame her team. Um, and by the way, since she made that video, they've missed every single quarter since. Okay, now let me pause here, folks. We know it's IBM, and we can be critical of that. How I, can't, I can't see very well, but how many of you have children? Yeah, that's a lot of you. Um, how many of you have been a parent like that? You know, it's your kids got pretty good report cards and did pretty well in school, and they came home with a C minus, and you said, how can you screw it up? 
most of us are no better than Ginny, are we? But I don't think you went to their school and in front of all of their friends s yelled at them about how they can't do anything right. If anything, it was done <laughs> in private, if anything. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hoping I did it in private. <laughs> um, but, but the point, I think the broader point is this. Um, and the takeaway is this. And then and you didn't lay off your kids. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You're through here, son. You're through. If you, don't, if you don't get your grades up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I perp walked him out to the curb. The, um, <laughs> so, but here's the point, and there's a point that I'm going to bring up in, over the next hour um, again and again, is that the lessons that you're going to learn here um, are applicable not just to leaders at the highest levels of corporate life or the President of the United States. Leadership is a concept that we should be able to apply in all areas of our lives because we are leaders. Any one of us who has something to share with more than one other other person in any group can, can use the principles that Simon talks about as, as leadership. So let's continue to apply these, uh, these ideas as we go forward. Yeah. Give, me a, give me a best practice. So here's the opposite story, and it's one of my favorite stories. It's a, it's a guy by the name of Bob Chapman. You've met Bob. Mm. He's a wonderful guy. Uh, Bob Chapman runs a multi-billion dollar manufacturing company, um, big machinery. And in 2008, they were hit very, very hard by the recession. They lost 30% of their pipeline, just dried up. And like many companies, um, they could no longer afford their labor pool. They didn't have the income to afford their labor pool. And like many companies, the board got together and said, we need to lay off a percentage of our uh, workforce to, make, to save $10 million. And Bob refused. Um, he, and one of the reasons he refused is they don't, Bob doesn't believe in head counts. He believes in heart counts. And it's very hard to reduce a heart count. Um, so instead what the company did was they implemented a furlough program where every single employee had to take four weeks of unpaid vacation. They could take it any time they wanted to, and they didn't have to take it consecutively. And the way Bob announced the program, he's, he, he's, he said, um, it's better we should all suffer a little than any of us should have to suffer a lot. And morale went up. And something happened, um, which is a, a great sign of great leadership, because in a poorly led organization, people will hunker down and protect themselves from each other and from the organization. In a well-led organization, people will take risks and take care of each other organically. And that's exactly what happened. It wasn't part of the program, but um, those who could afford it more took more time off so that those who could afford it less could take less time off. So someone would, would take five weeks so that somebody else only had to take three weeks. They were just helping. That wasn't part of the program. That was just them helping each other. After uh, a period of time, they, they saved $20 million. They, they got rid of the furlough program. Um, and uh, um, they, they backpaid the 401k that they had frozen. Um, and you cannot steal their employees. You tell tell us the again the name of the company. Barry Waymiller is the name of the company. And what do they do? Uh, they make big machines. So like um, when Kimberly Clark needs a machine to make toilet paper, they make the machine and sell it to hmm. Kimberly Clark. Hmm. Extraordinary to think, you know, in New York City, we often uh, fall prey to the illusion that a manufacturing is a is a set of dead industries in this country, but the, the percentage of the American economy dedicated to manufacturing is the same today as it was in 1970. The big difference, of course, is the number of jobs has declined right. by seven-eighths over that period because it has become so much more high-tech. Yeah. You, you require workers that can, uh, that can do a good job, and in, and in point of fact, this is a really important principle for, yeah. and, for and Bob Chapman and others. Yeah, and, and, it's, it's, and um, I visited many of his factories over the years and it's kind of inspiring to just walk around. You know, traditionally what you'll see in manufacturing, or any organization, quite frankly, that's poorly led, is you'll see the older employees 
um, keep information to themselves for fear that if they share it, somebody younger and cheaper, right. will, they, they feel like they're susceptible. Um, where uh, uh, in Bob's uh, factories, um, the old share everything they've learned with the younger ones because it's, 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 a, good way to, it's a good way to help each other out. It's hmm. kind of magical. Yeah. The, now, if, if the science is on the side of human-centered organizations based mm -hmm. on the principle of solidarity, mm -hmm. which clearly it is, I've heard you talk about it a lot, you have a lot of evidence to that effect. Why, why aren't more people doing this? How, can, how come we haven't, why haven't markets spread this best practice? Um, it's, a, it's such a great question. The, I think there are a couple reasons. One is uh, the incentive structures are misaligned. Um, most organizations incentivize short-term behavior. Um, um, and let's be clear about something, which is, I, I love talking to, to CEOs and they talk about how they, they incentivize performance. You cannot incentivize a result, you can only incentivize a behavior. Um, you, can, you can want a result, but you have to incentivize a behavior to get to that result. Mm. And so what we do is we incentivize behaviors that actually promote short-termism um, disloyalty, and if not disloyalty, then just every man for himself. Um, and we do not have incentive structures in most organizations that promote um, cooperation. Um, so one, one part is the incentive structures inside organizations. And the other part is, um, is we as human beings are actually pretty short-term focused. I mean, we, there's a little chemical in our bodies called dopamine. Mm. And, and we're very, very visual animals. And we like metrics. And we like lists. And we like being number one. And we like to see what we're after. And um, we actually are inherently short-termist uh, as an organism. And this is one of the reasons you need great leadership with vision that give us a reason to do something with something longer term in mind. Otherwise, mm. it would just be dog-eat-dog, dog, mm. sort of Lord of the Flies. Let's, uh, let's make it a little bit more applied before we move on here. Um, I have three teenage kids. I'm not here to tell you my problems, Simon, but um, <laughs> how can I apply this as a father? Um, so there's a few things. Um, uh, I think a, a, a families that do things together and have a sense of purpose, uh, like actually have a family why, um, is a big deal. Um, that um, you can have a credo as a family, you do things as a family to advance some greater good. Um, and understanding that even though our lives are finite, life is infinite. And you know our first names are finite, but our last names are infinite. And the question is, is what, what do you pass on to your kids that they will continue to, to grow without you. Yes. I, I had the opportunity to sit down with Richard Branson and I, and I asked him, how should we judge you when you die? Um, uh, which was probably an awkward question because we were just having dinner. Um, <laughs> it wasn't like an interview session, but anyway, I figured this is my opportunity. Um, I asked him, how should we judge you when you die? You know, what, what did you accomplish at Virgin that, I should, that we should look back at you and say, he lived a good life? Mm. And he said, do not judge me by anything I did at Virgin. He said, if you want to judge me, you judge me by the quality of my children. And I think there's something to be said for that, hmm. um, which is um, the kinds of things, not that you will leave this world in better shape that, than you found it, but rather how, will you, how are you going to prepare your children to leave this world in better shape hmm. than, than, than you found so it? So let's get to optimism then. Yeah. <clears throat> And let's keep it on just this particular theme, one that we can relate to before we go back up to leadership of corporations and leadership of, of, of countries, even. Optimism in our ordinary lives. <clears throat> I'm married to an optimist. My wife, Esther, who's from Barcelona, is a naturally sunny person. And, and last year, we were um, doing a, a parent-teacher conference that was going horribly wrong. 
um, my middle son, it was a grades problem, a big grades problem. He's not living up to his abilities, and, and, and it, was, it was grim, and it was stressful, and it was tense, and I realized it sounds ridiculous, but you know, you, some of you have kids, you know how it's like. And on the way home, we were, we were in an icy silence, and I was driving. And finally, my wife said, she broke the silence, and she said, we need to think about this problem in an entirely different way. And, and I said, what do you mean? She said, at least we know he's not cheating. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> or, 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 or what if he's a bad cheat? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I didn't even entertain that, you know, but um, so, <laughs> so give me a little bit of sunny optimism. I mean, we, look, we talked about since the Second World War, we've had a tendency toward short-termism. Yep. Certainly our public policy incentives through yep. Sarbanes-Oxley and a lot of other regulations have forced yep. us into a short-term paradigm for public corporations. In, when we have a two-year cycle in largely gerrymandered districts, uh, we, I mean, it's, it's, look, all the incentives are going the same way. Yep. Why are you optimistic, man? I mean, I fundamentally believe in the good of people. Um, and, and I think that I mean, just to use an extreme example, war is not sustainable, but peace is, you know? War, even if it goes a long time, it has to end at some point. Violence is not a sustainable strategy, but peace is a sustainable strategy. So I, I tend to believe that things will tend toward peace eventually um, and tend, tend toward stability. Nature abhors a vacuum and seeks balance at all times. Um, and so the opportunity is to expedite that process and to take care of the people along the journey. So how can you be more, now, now let's apply that optimism and your leadership paradigm of solidarity, of, unif of unifying leadership versus divisive leadership to the current political climate. Tell us what's going wrong today and how we can fix it. I mean, the, you know more about this than I do, but for, from what I can observe as a, you know, getting to look beneath the veil is the lack of relationships that exist even often within the party, but definitely between the parties. Um, and we can trace it back to Newt Gingrich and Contract for America, um, where um, when you, originally, if you got elected to, to uh, national office, you moved your family to Washington, and you lived in Washington, and you may fight with your colleagues of the opposite party on the floor during the day, but at night, you would be in the stands of the same ball games, and you would go to the same PTA meetings, and they, they would socialize. They actually knew each other, and they were actually friends. Um, and at some point, being an outsider became a dirty, uh, an insider became a dirty word. And uh, Gingrich encouraged people not to move their families to Washington, but rather commute. And so they just don't know each other. They come to Washington for three or four days a week, and then spend go back home, and they don't spend time together socially. And so they don't actually know each other. And and so why would you have empathy for somebody you don't know? They're simply the opposition. Um, and we've moved away, so it's been explained to me by members of Congress who've been, in, in, who've been there for a while. It used to be where they would come to an agreement with 80%, for an 80% agreement behind closed doors and the last 20% was for the cameras. And now it's 100% for the cameras. And it used to be where both parties, they would come up with a, a, a deal where both parties would go home to their constituents and say, we won, we got what we wanted. Now it's not enough to be able to go back and say, we won, you also have to prove that the other guy lost. And, and if you read anything about effective negotiation and William Urey's work and you know, getting to yes and things like that, the yes, yes is the only viable solution for progress. You know, the whole winner and loser thing is just, it's, it, it is a formula for stagnation. Mm. Um, and we've seen exactly what's happened now. The Republicans during Obama were the party of no um, and were obstructionist and everything the president did was bad. Um, but now we've seen a complete flop. The Democrats are now the party of no 
and everything the president does is bad. And, um, and it's the same thing. It's, an, it's become obstructionist. And I don't want to know what the party is against. I want to know what the party's for. I cannot tell you, except for a policy here or a policy there, I cannot tell you what either party stands for. And now they're actually voting for legislation that actually violates whatever things they've been talking about for years, the deficit being, being the thing that I'm referring to. But I, this is what our country is lacking. We're, we're lacking something we can believe in rather than rail against. It's easy to rally people against things, but as I said, versus peace versus war, it is not a sustainable, viable strategy for progress or stability. But standing for something, even, even, even when times are tough, I think is what gets us through, through difficult times, that, hmm. that, that we have something worth fighting for. Hmm. I've heard you make a point that I think is important and, and important to share with the audience here tonight, <clears throat> which is that there, there's a principle in business. If you actually had as the, the, the moral consensus between you and a negotiating partner that to win is to get 100%, the, the, the negotiations would break down immediately and yep. no business would get done. It's extraordinary when you talk to, with the most the hard-headed negotiators in the most successful companies. They want the other side to win. Mm. <laughs> they they, they want to leave something on the table. Mm. They want to leave something on the table because they want to have multiple transactions and they want to have goodwill and because they want to be good people. That's how we're wired, there's right? A, there's a funny story I, I read about a bunch of years ago of a very, very successful Chinese entrepreneur. He's one of the richest guys in China. He's a, he's a real estate mogul. And he gives 51% um, of his deals away to, to his partners, always. He always gives the majority share to all his partners. And somebody came to him and said, why do you give away the majority share in all your deals? And he replied, because everyone wants to do business with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's making it up on volume. And, and certainly, we do see that in the business world. And yet, it's, this, is a, uh, um, this is a problem that has cropped up in our political world. When the moral consensus, which I believe, looking at the words of the founders of this country, this is a country that was built by gentry for ambitious riffraff. Um, we descend <laughs> from ambitious riffraff. It's an extraordinary thing. I mean, uh, in, in, in this audience, this is the one thing that we all have in common. Go back two or three generations. It's riffraff, and we're proud of it. It's just amazing. And, and, and when the consensus is to push opportunity out to the margins of society, and that moral consensus collapses, then the competition of ideas, which is good and healthy, disagreements, fantastic, when it circulates around that moral consensus. But when that moral consensus collapses, then the competition of ideas leads ideas to hit each other head on into a holy war yeah. of ideologies. Yeah. Is that fair? I think you're right. Um, and I think the, the whole idea of the gentry looking to build something for the uh, enterprising riffraff, I think is actually very interesting because what, what those enterprising riffraff are, the middle class. Mm -hmm. And the bigger the middle class, the better the, the nation. And when the middle class gets smaller and the margins get further and further separated, that's the recipe for revolution. That's what happens in revolution. You know, you go back to any revolution. It's those that ha the have-nots looking at the haves going, this isn't fair. And I'm not talking about, you know, distribution or anything like that. I'm just talking about developing policy or finding, and this is about business as well, which is how do we create an environment in which all of our people can thrive and be and work to their natural best and feel like they're contributing to something bigger than themselves. That, that's what I'm talking about. It's not, talk, it's not about giving away money. It's not about, you know, in, in this country, we don't have a problem with people who work hard making lots of money. Like, it doesn't bother anybody. Uh, the problem we have is that when the people who have, the gentry, as you call them, um, actually look for ways not to allow other people to join them, hmm. 
um, and keep them at bay um, rather than, than, than promote the enterprising riffraff, which I think is a lovely, a hmm. lovely image. There's, a, um, there's a, a book I highly recommend to everybody written by a guy at the Brookings Institution, which is a think tank two doors down from mine, which we work with them a lot. It's a guy named Richard Reeves, who's one of the, wor the world's leading experts on, on poverty. And he's written a new book about exactly that, fortresses that people take and build around themselves. And so they do things like promote legacies at Ivy League universities, mm. where it's easier to get into an Ivy League university if your parents went. Well, that's insane. Mm. That's completely undemocratic, and it's not right, is his point. And I, I'm inclined to agree. Do you? I, I mean, I think it's funny how when you go to poor neighborhoods, and there's lots of anthropology and sociology, uh, there's lots of studies done on this, but you go to poor neighborhoods, um, kids play in the front, and other parents watch each other's kids, right? Huge amount of cooperation in poor neighborhoods. In rich neighborhoods, neighbors sue each other because your branches are hanging over my fence, you know? Mm. And that's hilarious to me, which is the richer we get, the bigger our walls get, and the, the less we actually cooperate, and the less we have, the more cooperative we are. Visit any slum in India, you'll see a remarkable cooperative society that's highly, highly functional, and by the way, extremely safe, because everybody takes care of everybody. Hmm. Um, and I think there's something to be, to be said for um, cooperation and, 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 and yeah. breaking It's interesting, my, my wife grew up in real poverty in a single parent household in, in, in Barcelona, and <coughs> she said that one of the great things about growing up is that you could count on the neighbors parents to hit you if you did the wrong thing. And she talks about this as if it was a really wonderful thing. So I, I suppose we can take this to a, uh, kind of an extreme. Um, like neighborhoods are good. Like when somebody moves into your neighborhood, or in our case, into our buildings, I think it's good to knock on their door and introduce yourself and say hi. I think it's good to knock on, on the door and say, do you have some eggs I can borrow? Incidentally, and Brene Brown talks about this a lot, we don't build trust with people by offering our help. We build trust with people by asking for help. Hmm. Um, and so I think there's a lot to be said for knocking on your neighbor and saying, can I borrow some sugar, you know? Mm. Um, uh, I, I, I like that idea of, mm. of being neighborly. Let's, um, let's move on to a little bit more life advice. <clears throat> you, uh, you came to the public attention, largely, um, because of Start With Why. And that grew out of a TED Talk where you basically coined the phrase for most people who saw it, at least the 36 million Americans, when few, more than one out of 10 Americans um, would have seen this talk at this point, um, where you say you have to understand not just the what of your life, or the what of your enterprise, the what of your business, and not even the how, but the why. And, you can, and that's the hard question. And people go their whole lives avoiding that question. So I'm going to ask you how we should do that. But first, I want to ask Simon Sinek, what's your why, man? Uh, my why is to inspire people to do the things that inspire them so that each of us can change our world for the better. Um, and I have a crystal clear vision of the world that I would rather live in than the one we live in now. Describe it just uh, a bit. I imagine a world in which the vast majority of people um, wake up inspired every morning, um, feel safe when they're at work, and feel fulfilled at the end of the day. Um, and um, I will do anything that I can to help not only advance that vision, but to offer tools or ideas that help um, get us there, to find the pieces of the puzzle. And I'm constantly looking for people who, wanna, who think that they have a piece of the puzzle who want to join up and help build the world. Hmm. Um, and uh, How did you come to that? How long did it take you to figure that one out? Uh, pain <coughs> is the reason. So a bunch of years ago, I had a small business, a little marketing consultancy, and um, the first few years were great, 
and the fourth year was awful. Um, and I realized that I didn't have the skill set to build a business. Like I was running on force of personality for the first three years. And, and the, f for the There's plenty of that. It's like a natural energy source, yeah. by the way. That's but it's not sustainable. <coughs> it's like and the, uh, the nuclear core it's also, and it's, is pulsating. And it, it's definitely not scalable. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so my fourth year was very, very difficult, but I lived under this false assumption that as the president of the company, I had to know all the answers, and if I didn't, I have to pretend that I do. And, um, and, and so most of my energy went in pretending that I was happier, more successful, and more in control than I actually felt, which really is a terrible use of energy. And uh, lying, hiding, and faking basically every day. Hmm. And so it was a very close friend of mine came to me, and she was worried about me. She said, I'm, I'm worried about you. You're not the same. And so I came clean and told her how I felt. And it was as if a huge weight was taken off my shoulders, just coming clean. And it gave me the mental capacity to now take the energy that I was putting into pretending and put it into finding a solution. And the solution that I happened to find was this naturally occurring pattern based on the biology of human decision making that every single one of us knows what we do. Some of us know how we do it, but very few of us can clearly articulate why we do what we do. Hmm. And I don't mean to make money. I mean, why do you get out of bed in the morning and why should anyone care? And I could answer the question what I did and I could also tell you how, but I couldn't tell you why. And I became obsessed with that question um, and um, I sought advice from others. And I came up with a, a, a harebrained way of putting it together and worked with someone and I was able to put words to my why that helped me understand all the times in my, lives in my life where I was most joyous just to inspire people to do things that inspire them. And I became obsessed with this idea. It's all I ever talked about. Somebody said, what are you up to these days? I talked about this thing. And people just kept inviting me to talk about it. The way it started was um, I would sh help my friends find their why. Um, they would invite me to help their friends. I used to do it for 100 bucks on the side. I used to go to people's apartments in Manhattan and stand in their living room and talk about the why to their friends. That's how it started. And people just kept inviting me, and I just kept saying yes. It was totally organic and continues to be organic. It continues to be an organic uh, a journey. Um, so it became a, a, um, something that I was deeply passionate and remain passionate for. Before we get to, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not so organic that you all have to stumble upon it. I'm going to get Simon to give us a little bit of a few ideas on how to do that here in a second. Um, but it's, it's interesting because when I first read about your story, it reminded, you know, I had this, I had this kind of epiphany, this experience when, uh, yeah, when I was- Yeah, what's your why? Well, I was playing in the, uh, I, was a, I was a member of the Barcelona Symphony Orchestra, um, and, and it was a great job. I mean, I was playing the best music ever written every night, and my favorite composer, <clears throat> still is, is Johann Sebastian Bach. Um, the greatest, maybe the greatest composer who ever lived. Yeah. I mean, unbelievably pro, yeah, what do you mean, eh? The, um, the, he was, he, it's like, Come on, man. Anyway, so there's a, a he wrote more than a he published more than a thousand pieces in his in his 65 years of you know all different different uh, combinations of instruments of so choral works and orchestra works and chamber music and and keyboard works and unbelievably prolific. He also had, by the way, 20 kids, which is prolific. Unbelievably and, prolific. Unbelievably yeah. prolific. And <clears throat> and uh, and but but here's what caught my attention about it when I was still in the music business when I was in my late 20s. Um, I was trying to, I was casting about, I was like, how would I want to do the rest of my life? I thought maybe there was more. And I read this biography of Bach by a minor biographer who's been lost to posterity. But, but he asked Bach the why question. It's weird because, you know, people always ask, this is a very successful group of people here. People always ask you, what do you do? Hmm. They never ask you why you do it. What would you say? Hmm. 
before you leave here tonight, we're going to have instructions, <laughs> I hope, on, on how you answer that question. But <clears throat> this biographer asked Bach, why do you, Herr Bach, why do you write music? Here's what he said. The aim and final end of all music is nothing less than the glorification of God in the enjoyment of man. And I thought, I want to say that about my work. <laughs> <laughs> but, and it was, it was like a knife to the heart because I couldn't when I was a musician. And so I went in search of something where I could give Bach's answer. If, if you're secular, don't be, don't be confused by this. He's saying that the purpose of work should be sanctified service to others. Mm -hmm. That your, your ordinary work, your toil, the ultimate goal should be to serve other people. I know you gotta pay the rent <laughs> and your electric bill, I got it. But if the purpose, if the why is not to serve others, you're doing the wrong thing. This is from Bach who died in 1750. This is not some newfangled, you know, upper class deal from modern America. And that's what sent me in search of, you know, it's weird. I became an economist so I could answer like Bach. Bach made me leave music. <laughs> so what's your why? So what's, so what's your why? My why is to use the power of ideas to serve other people and help them to lead richer, more valuable, more meaningful lives. And that's why we get along. Maybe this is it. It's a match made in heaven. But all whys, all whys are in service to other people. You know, we, I usually write them in the infinitive, to blank. You know, they're in service. And when people say to get or to have, or to, you know, when they, and when they put I in, in the front, it, it's not a job, to, you, to your point. The job comes. Mm. Th there is a job to be done. There, a why without, you know. The, the job is the how. The, 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 the vision without execution is hallucination, right. you mm. know. Uh, wow, I, man. I, th I think it's Henry Ford. Wow. <laughs> uh, but, uh, um, which is true. It's not one or the other, it's one and the other. You know, just having why and no means to, it's not a hippie commune. You know, it's like, we, there, is th there are things to be done um, and there's good work to be done. Um, and people, human beings, take satisfaction in building things and seeing what we mm. built, you know? So um, the, the work that we're talking about here, Simon, is that it, it, it took thought and effort yeah. for both you and me to come up with the articulation of the yeah. why that yeah. truly was in service of other people, and it is the reason we get along. Now, almost everybody I meet who's casting about, yeah. almost everybody I meet who's unhappy about the way they're living their lives is in search of their why, yeah. I find. So, so give us the hack. Sure. Give us the, the steps yeah. on how we can, how our friends here, if they are in fact casting about, yeah. can write their own why. Well, I'll tell you a quick f aside. So I wrote Start With Why, came out in 2009. And uh, you know, I made the case for this, the existence of this thing called the why. And uh, uh, for years, people said, you told us, you made the case for the why, but you didn't tell us how to do it. Hmm. So eight years later, we wrote Find Your Why. Hmm. Um, you know, it took eight years. This just came out, by the and way. It came out in September. Um, but, yeah. um, but I'll give you the hack to answer your question. Um, so go to the... Go to your best friends, um, the people you love and who love you. Do not do this with spouses. Do not do this with your boyfriends or girlfriends or those or or siblings. It's, those relationships are too close. But go to your best friends, the people who, if they called you at 3 o'clock in the morning, you would definitely take the call, um, and, uh, and you know that they would take yours. And you ask them this simple question, why are we friends? And they're going to look at you like you're crazy. You know, because what you're asking them to do is verbalize something that exists in the nonverbal part of the brain, the limbic brain. And they're going to go, ah, I don't know. 
Of course they know, they just can't put it into words, right? It's a feeling. And the irony of finding your why is you actually don't ask the question why, because the question why is an emotional question and it elicits emotional responses. We need a rational response, right? So it's like with your kids, why are you home late? Shut up, dad. Versus what were you doing that you're home late? You'll get an, you'll get an answer. So that's when you convert. You say to your friends, come on, what is it about me that I know that you would be there for me no matter what? And they're gonna start describing you with great frustration. Ah, I don't know, you're funny, I, I trust you, and you have to play devil's advocate. You can't, let, you can't help them and you can't let anybody else help them. And you say, good, that's the definition of a friend. What specifically is it about me that I know you'd be there for me no matter what? And again, they'll frustratingly, you know, frustrated, answer your question, oh, why, uh, and they'll tr again continue to describe you. I don't recommend any of this on the first date, my friend, no. by the way. <clears throat> and, and, and again, you'll say, that's the definition of a best friend, and eventually, they'll give up. And eventually, they'll stop trying to describe you, and they'll start describing themselves. And they'll say, I don't know. All I know is, is that I can just sit in the room with you, and I don't even have to talk to you, and I, can feel and I feel inspired. That's what my friends told me. And I got goosebumps, I'm getting them now. I got goosebumps when they said that to me, right? So if you have an emotional response to the way your friends describe your value in their life, that's your why. You'll get goosebumps, you'll well up, you'll have some sort of emotional response. And basically, if you do this with multiple friends, you'll find that they'll say similar, if not the exact same thing, because your why is the value you offer to the world. It is unchangeable. It is, there is only one your entire life. It is the value you offer to the world, it is the reason your friends love you, it's the reason your colleagues respect you, and it is the gap you fill in the lives of your friends, which is why not everybody likes you, and why you don't like everybody, because there has to be some sort of connecting. And it is a really magical experience to do that with a friend. Hmm. That's the hack. That's the hack, and that's a lot of work. <laughs> <clears throat> it's actually the least amount of work compared to the other ways. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, just casting about and not knowing, of course, is, is tricky, and it's, uh, it's... It's easier not to do it. That's mm -hmm. the easiest. It's an extraordinary thing, I've heard you talk about this as well, that when you don't know your why, what happens to you? What happens to your identity? And, 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 and I've heard you say that your identity is defined by others. Uh, there's a couple things that can happen if you don't know your why. One is you uh, can suffer malaise at worse or worse depression, um, and we become very focused on the stuff. So am I working at a name brand company? Am I making the most money? I met a guy recently, it was, it was a, 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 the husband of a friend of my sister's who was having a hard time. He'd been laid off and he was having a hard time and sort of called in a favor and asked him if I would help him. And I, I went through my process of asking times where he found joy. And what, basically what I learned was since he graduated college, every single job he took, he took for the money. Whoever, whoever offered him more money was the job he took and never made a decision based on the people he'd work with, the company he worked for, the culture. Those things never factored. Every job he took was who, who paid him more money. And now he's in his mid-40s and is literally depressed and lacks focus, and, and, it, and this is what happens. It builds up, which is, yes, he made more money in the short term than all his friends, and now he's jobless. Um, compared to the people who um, as they take jobs, and this is, so this is advice that you know, we tell our kids when they graduate school, get a job, but we, we rarely say get a job you, you love. And, um, and we don't tell them what to look for when they go into a company. 
you know, uh, recruiters will always ask, so what are you looking for? And somebody will say, X salary with these kinds of benefits and this kind of vacation. Versus, I'm looking for a mentor. I'm looking for a place that will help me grow. I'm looking to work at a place where I can be myself. You know, these are things to look for. And those are the jobs we should be taking early in our careers. And you absolutely will not make more money than your friends in the short term. You will have more joy on the journey and you will find yourself mid in midlife in incredible love with your, with your work and your life. And hard work is not a problem. So I think we confuse st uh, stress and passion. Because if you look, when you're passionate for something, well, let's start the other way. If you're stressed about something, if, you're, if you have a high stress, you work long hours, you miss your family, it's, you toil, you don't know, stress. Well, what's passion? You work long hours, you miss your family, you know? <laughs> the, difference is, the difference is, is something I, I, I want to be a part of and something I don't want to be a part of. That's the only difference. Stress or passion is simply the result of whether this fits into something greater in my life. But if you don't know why you showed up in the first place, you're only going to have stress. Hmm. You can work doubly as hard and have passion. You can be traveling all around the world. Miss your, you can still miss your family. You can still hate that side of it. But you will love what you're doing. Um, and I think that too many of us miss out on that, where we choose. I remember interviewing a kid a long time ago. Um, who I, I, this is when I worked in, 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 a, in a, when I had a job, when I worked in the ad business. And I, I worked on a rinky-dink account under the radar because I chose the job based on who I'd be working for, who's one of the best leaders I've ever had, best bosses I've ever had to this day, mm. Peter Intimaggio. And I said to him, do you want to work for us? And he says, no. I said, why not? He goes, well, I want to work on Kodak, you know, IBM, whatever, name brands, American Express. I'm like, but, all the heavy lifting's done there. Don't you want to come build something? He's like, no, no. I, and it was now in this LinkedIn, Instagram world where, and I've talked to some young people about this, which is being able to put something on LinkedIn that sounds good to everybody else is actually more important to some than actually doing something that sounds terrible to everybody else, but it brings you personal joy. Like appearances have become a little too important. And these are life decisions. Mm. These are life decisions. Mm. Your fake life is more important than your, your real life. Your fake life is more important than your real life. <clears throat> Which, of course, is greatly exacerbated by all social media. I mean, look, we, human beings are like that all the time. Right. It's worse with social media. Right. Because now everyone's actually watching, and you can actually <clears throat> count the number of people that watched. Yeah, wor worth noting, by the way, that notwithstanding the fact that Simon and I are both on social media, um, there is a tremendous amount of research that is emerging showing that social media is a net public bad that the more time you spend on social media, the less happy you will be. Precisely, speaking to Simon's point, that you will be pursuing your fake life and crowding out your real life. Your choice. Yeah, your I mean, choice. there's good data on this. People who spend more time on Facebook have, suffer higher rates of depression than people who spend less time on Facebook. There's nothing wrong with social media. It's about balance, right? Uh, there's nothing wrong with cell phones. It's about, it's about balance, like alcohol. Like, a glass of alcohol a day is good for you. A glass of wine for you a day is good for you. That doesn't mean a bottle of wine a day is better for you. You know, <laughs> balance. Gambling is fun. Gambling your kids, uh, you know, college education, not a good idea. I'm just writing all this down. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So, so it's, it, there's nothing wrong with those things, but I think the problem is for too many of us, the balance has become lost. Exactly and, right. And for, for good and bad reasons. Exactly right. So um, I've got one more quick question that I'm going to turn over to the audience. So the reason I mentioned that is because as I ask the last question, I want you to get your, your questions ready. And we're going to have people with microphones are going to run around, and I'm going to try to see you, and I'm going to call on you. But, but the last question is this. Uh, we've been talking about Start With Why, and we've been tangentially talking about Leaders Eat Last. 
because there are a lot of themes that we've touched on from that book too, also out here, I think, yeah. and, and I really recommend that highly. Um, what's your new book? And why are you writing it? Oh, it's exciting. I actually really, no, I say it's exciting. So I'm a little different. I mean, than he's excited because yeah, I'm excited. it's his why. I'm a little yeah, different. Yeah. I'm a little different than a lot of authors, which is I f after I wrote Start With Why, I thought I was done. I never thought I'd write one book. And after I wrote one book, I thought I was done. I used to joke that I was a one trick pony, but it was a good trick. Hmm. Um, uh, and I, I feel no urge to write books unless I have something to write about. And when I feel that I have something to write about, it's usually because I'm trying to solve a problem for myself or someone else. In my travels and readings, I stumble upon something that I think has, has, is interesting. I build upon that. It kind of clicks. And somebody says, can you come and tell us about this? People invite me to talk about it. And then invariably, I have dinner with my publisher. And he says, yeah, we should publish that. And that's usually what happens. And I stumbled upon this idea that I've fallen in love with. Um, here's how I start the book. Um, 1968. Vietnam, uh, the North Vietnamese uh, launch a surprise attack against American forces. It's called the Tet Offensive. Uh, Tet is the Vietnamese equivalent of Christmas. Um, and uh, like the Christmas um, armistice in World War I, um, there was a tradition in Vietnam where there was no fighting on Tet. This has been for decades, no fighting on Tet. But on this Tet, in 1968, they decided to violate that tradition and surprise the Americans. They threw 85,000 troops at about 150 targets across the entire country that day. Here's the amazing thing. The United States repelled every single attack. And at the end of about, the, the major fighting had ceased after about a week. Hue went on for about a month, but the major fighting ceased after about a week. And after that week, the United States had lost fewer than 1,000 troops, so a few hundred troops. North Vietnam lost 35 thousand of the 85,000 troops. And if you look at the Vietnam War as a whole, um, over 10 years, America lost 58,000 troops. North Vietnam lost 3 million, right? And if uh, America actually won nearly, if not every <coughs> single battle we fought. So explain to me how you win every battle and decimate your enemy and lose the war, right? So what it shows us is that the idea of winning and losing is not entirely object, uh, objective or clear to many. There are, if you have at least one competitor, you have a game. And there are two types of games. There are finite games and there are infinite games. A finite game is defined as known players, fixed rules, and an agreed upon objective, football. We all agree by the rules. We all agree whoever has more points at the end of the game is the winner. The game ends, we go home. Then you have an infinite game. An infinite game is defined as known and known unknown players. The rules are changeable, and the objective is to perpetuate the game, to keep the game in play, to stay in the game. When you pit a finite player versus a finite player, the system is stable. Football is stable. When you pit an infinite player versus an infinite player, the system is also stable. The Cold War was stable because we could not have a winner or a loser, and we both play to stay in the game until one of the players runs out of the will or the resources to play, and they drop out of the game, but the game continues without, without you, with you or without you. Problems arise when you pit a finite player versus an infinite player, because finite players are playing to win, and infinite players are playing to keep playing. And this was the mistake the Americans made in Vietnam. America was fighting to beat the North Vietnamese, and the North Vietnamese were fighting for their lives. Very different set of strategic choices, right? America didn't lose the Vietnam War. They dropped out because they ran out of the will or the resource to continue to play, right? Now, if you look at our lives, you look at the world, you look at business. 
There is no such thing as winning business, right? Business is an infinite game. The game of business has existed long before every single company on the planet, and it will outlast every single company on the planet. But if you listen to the language of most businesses, they don't know the game they're in. They talk about being number one. They talk about beating their competition. They talk about being the best. Based on what metrics? Revenue, profit, market share, square footage, number of employees? Based on what time frames? A quarter, a year, five years, 10 years, 50 years? I haven't agreed to your standards. Anybody can declare themselves number one if you get to choose your own metrics and you get to choose your own time frames. In other words, there's no such thing as being number one. There's only ahead and behind. That's all there is. And so that means that most companies are playing business like, North, uh, like America played the Vietnam War. You will eventually run out of the will or the resources to play, which means bankruptcy or merger and acquisition, and you will fall out of the game, and the game will continue with you without you. And this became really clear to me with a personal experience I had. I spoke at an education summit for Microsoft, and I spoke at an education summit for Apple. At the Microsoft Summit, 70 or 80% of the executives spent 70 to 80% of their PowerPoints talking about how to beat Apple. <laughs> At the Apple Summit, 100% of the executives spent 100% of their time talking about how to help teachers teach and how to help students learn. One was obsessed with their cause, the other one was obsessed with beating their competition. Guess which one was in quagmire, hmm. right? So at the end of my talk at Microsoft, they gave me a gift. They gave me the new Zune when it was a thing. This was their answer to the iPod. <laughs> and this little piece of technology was spectacular. It was beautifully designed. It worked flawlessly. The user interface was incredible. It was amazing. So at the end of my talk with Apple, I'm sharing a taxi with a very senior Apple executive, and I decided to stir the pot. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. And I turned to him and I say, you know, I spoke at Microsoft and they gave me the new Zune. It is so much better than your iPod Touch. And he looked at me and he said, I have no doubt. And the conversation was over. <laughs> because the infinite player understands sometimes your product is better and sometimes their product is better. And sometimes you're ahead and sometimes you're behind. The goal is not to beat your competition. The goal is to outlast your competition. Okay, now give it to me before we turn over to the audience. Turn that into life advice for every person sitting in here. Because not every sure. person in here is actually running a company. Sure, absolutely. But every single person in this audience has to, deserves to live a happier life starting tonight. So what does it mean to live an infinite life? Our lives mm. are finite, clearly. But life is infinite. And if you play by the finite rules in your life, you're playing a game of accumulation, how to be number one, how to get the most money, how to get the most power, right? Whatever your metric is. And if you have more money and more power than everybody else, when you die, you don't win life. It's just over, <laughs> right? But if you play by the infinite rules, the question is, how do you outlive yourself, right? How do you live a life that others are better because you were in their life? How do you live a life that when you're gone, they will say, I am who I am, or this is how it is, because of that person's contribution. We have forgotten millions and billions of people who have died over the course of humanity, but we remember people like Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa, because they contributed to something bigger than themselves. They do not live in infamy, but they live as sort of a reminder to us of what we can do for others. Now, that's big and macro and service to mankind, but we can live those lives in micro fashion as well. We all have a mentor, a grandparent, somebody that is in our lives that we think back with fondness, that we may put a picture of them. I have a picture of my grandfather in my bedroom. 
He had a profound impact on me. He lived an infinite life for me, right? So how do you make choices on a daily basis that you will literally outlive your own life? That's what it means to live an infinite life. Hmm. Um, I'm turning it over to you now. We have 15 minutes left, and I want to hear what's on your mind. We have microphones, and we have hands in the air, and those are both really good things. So right here, I see a hand waving, which is emphatic and good. So please, we're going to wait. We're gonna, Mike's going to come back to you. Please stand up and, and tell us your name and, uh, and what's on your mind. Hi. Um, my name's Aaron Hull. I uh, saw your TED Talk six years ago when I onboarded a Tesla. I've been teaching um, AP government and civics for 20 years as well. And not if, but when you talk to my high school civics classes. Um, what are you going to tell them about civic engagement and making the country a better place for them and their grandkids? Do you, do you know all these studies about um, inner city schools that teach civics? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, the, uh, for those who don't know, and you, you know the statistics better than I do, but basically kids who learn uh, civics outperform kids who don't learn civics, like profoundly, right. and are happier people. And because civics teaches us our, our responsibility to, to our society, that paying taxes is not a thing to avoid. Paying it's taxes is, is a social responsibility that goes to, and, the, and the, the thing we're voting for is how will our taxes be properly spent? Um, uh, things like that. And I think um, that I, I'm a huge fan of that because what we're doing is teaching in schools cooperation and responsibility to community, which I, I think few, if any, other subjects actually teach. It's the accumulation of grades or, you know, I read a thing on, on the interwebs today that was really funny. It's like, so glad I, I, I learned about um, um, parallelograms instead of uh, taxes because it'll help me during parallelogram season. Um, um, but civics is practical. That was written by my son Carlos, right. by the way. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I, I think that um, we don't do enough in schools um, to teach kids cooperation and group projects and shared grades and, share, and, and, and what it means to help the person next to you. Um, uh, and, and I think there are all kinds of ways we can do it. If anything, schools are becoming, um, like parents are partially to blame. There have been some schools that have attempted to ban cell phones in the schools and it's the parents who complained and the parents who prevented the schools from passing those rules because in case there's an emergency. Um, more like I have to text my kid and tell him what time I'm picking him up. You know, because if there's an emergency, you call the office, they get the kid out of school, and the old system works fine. Um, just saying. So you're free sometime in April or May? <laughs> <laughs> if, if I get my book written on time, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which is to say no. Um, the, um, all right, we've got one. Uh, oh, yes. Have, it's, it's, uh, we're going to come here, and then we're going to go to the back. So we'll go to this side, and, and he half <laughs> stood up, which gives him special. There we go. And you've, you've got a mic in your hand. Yes, sir. He your brought, name? He brought Hello, in the mic. Josh here. I, too, was uh, shown the Golden Circle video, I think, six years ago. Uh, so thank you for You're welcome. changing thank my you. life. Thanks but, for being a part of it. Uh, I recently saw your video about uh, millennials and instant gratification. And how do you balance the difference between instant gratification and ambition? I think our generation has access to more information and more opportunities. Uh, we're always looking for what's next and what's better yeah. and you know, progress our career. Yeah. Um, is it such a bad thing to want more sooner? Yeah. There's nothing wrong with ambition as long as it doesn't come at the expense of others, right? Um, you're allowed to work to advance yourself, but you can't stab people to do it. Um, 
And the irony about ambition is if we put ourselves out there to help others, others help us. Um, if you volunteer to offer somebody support, they'll be there for you. Um, the number of people who over the course of years will say, you helped me years ago, now I'm gonna help you back. And you're far more likely to advance with loyal people around you. Um, in other words, ambition works better for human beings when we actually are more cooperative. Um, I think the, the difference is when we, when we have ambition, there's, there's something that we're trying to strive towards. It's a marathon, right? Whereas instant gratification is, I just want to run a mile. I don't care in which direction. And you keep, you know, you keep hitting all of these milestones. It's like that guy who kept making more money. Every job he took, he made more money, he took more money, but in, in service of nothing. That's not, I don't think that's actually ambition. I, I think ambition is the desire to advance something bigger than yourself. And, and that, that's, I think, healthy ambition. I think unhealthy ambition is I want to be rich and I want to be famous. Um, um, but it'll come at great expense to you and those around you. If I can translate this into, into I think, Simon speak. Um, ambition should be to serve your why, as opposed to serve your how and to serve your what, which are inherently um, gestures in futility, because yeah. they never lead to anything that's satisfying. It raises an interesting question about language, which is we have too many words in the English language that have, that have multiple meanings. And so the words actually cause problems, right? Like, I, the, my favorite one now is when, when companies talk about fail fast. Fail fast. Failure is good, they say. Oh, we can see you. It's lovely. Oh, it's... Um, fail fast. It's there are people good. here. It's just yeah. fantastic. And, and the problem with that is, is the, the word failure is too big. It's like cancer, right? You can have um, liver cancer, or you can have a melanoma, and the doctor will tell you, you have one has a 99% chance of curing, the other one, you're, it's a death sentence. But the doctor tells you, you have cancer. That's the problem, it's the same word. And so failure is bad. We don't want to fail, but falling is good. Fall fast and get back up, right? And I think ambition is the other one. It's, it's, a, it's a word that is too many things, and we need to, to sort of probably come up with a second word to bifurcate. Um, so we can call one ambition, whether that one's the healthy or an unhealthy one, and we can call the other one commitment to one's why. They're the same thing. Hmm. Right in the back, in the back, very back row. <coughs> hey, um, I was at, there's a two for one here, if that's okay, because she's standing right next to me, and I know she's got one too. Sorry. So I have a question about so much of your why, I think, from what I understand, um, falls under the umbrella of helping others and helping other people find their passions and their whys. But yeah. where do you, I, I know that I've been thinking about this a lot, especially living in New York and especially when it's really goddamn cold outside and there's people outside, you know, asking for money and this and that. Where do you draw the line between helping one person or a few people and like trying to save the world? Ah, such a great question. Mm. Yeah. So service to your why and service to a cause is, is, is not charity, right? And, um, I um, have no problem saying no to things that don't help advance my cause, because you can't help everyone, right? And even Mother Teresa, I'm gonna get myself in trouble, uh, in some of her letters that they discovered after she died, started saying to herself, she, first of all, she wasn't happy, it turns out. And she started questioning like this unbridled service to others, like what does it all mean, right? Um, and what a why does is it provides focus, that you give to things that actually make you feel like you contributed to something, for the most part, right? Um, to some, something that actually matters to you, as opposed to everything. And the good news is there's enough variety in the whys that hopefully everything gets taken care of. You don't have to be responsible for everything, but lots of people can be responsible for everything. 
Um, and so the opportunity is to stay, stay focused. Um, and you do the things that you believe are helping advance, advance that thing. So for me, like for example, we're talking about, you're talking about helping people on the street. Of course it's nice to do that now and then. Um, uh, uh, but uh, I, I choose to give my money in places that sort of advance sort of my vision. Um, and that makes me feel like I'm working to something bigger uh, than myself. But yeah, be, be under no illusion. It doesn't mean giving to everything, to everyone all the time. Uh, if anything, it's teach a man how to fish and those opportunities. Street homelessness is a particularly difficult question that people who study this subject, that they're wrapped around the axle on this as well. It's very important to keep in mind that, that there are unintended secondary consequences to acting charitably in certain cases. And street homelessness is one of those cases. And so thinking about the ethics of that, thinking through exactly how you can help people the most, as opposed to simply getting somebody off your back is an important distinction as well. I did did I ever tell you the experiment I did on the homeless? Oh no, you did an experiment on the homeless? Yeah, okay. this is a bunch of years <clears throat> back. No, it was really good. Uh, uh, so I wanted to make the point that all selling was the same, whether you're Microsoft or whether you're homeless, right? Uh, which is you're selling something and you want to market to people to give to you, to buy from you, right? So the homeless are selling goodwill, right? If you uh, walk past somebody homeless and you give them a dollar, you feel good. If you give them nothing, you feel nothing or you feel bad. You pay for that feeling of goodwill, right? There's a, tr there's a transaction, which means they're marketing the sale of goodwill. The problem is their marketing is the same as companies. It's all about me, 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 me. Like bigger memory, more screen, you know, bigger screen, more this, more that. It's all about the product. That's what they do. I'm homeless, I'm hungry, I got six kids, I'm a veteran. Like it's all on there, right? Hoping to appeal to someone to give to them. But it's all about them. So I wanted to prove that if you make it about the buyer, if you make it about something else, that it's actually more effective. So I found somebody who was uh, homeless um, and I found out that she makes between 20 to $30 a day of uh, selling goodwill, and her work day is eight to 10 hours of sitting on the street with her little sign, and her sign was typical, I'm homeless, I'm hungry, and, and $30 is a very good day for her, right? So I asked her if I could change her sign, and with the new sign that I gave her, she made $40 in two hours, and then she left, because she's made the decision in her life that she only needs $20 or $30 what a day what you say on the to... Sign? Live and once you make Tell me what you said. The sign said. This is a life hack too, by the way. The sign yeah. said, "If you only give once a month, please think of me next time." Because what I did was I went and asked people why they don't give. I didn't ask people why they do give, and I heard two predominant answers: I can't give to everyone, and how do I know they're legitimate? So I answered both the questions. If you only give once a month, I know you can't give to everyone. Uh, I'll be. Please think of me next time. I'm legit. Hmm. And. Uh, it worked. Hmm. And so when I see homeless people now, I buy them a pen and a piece of cardboard and <laughs> give them a better sign. By the way, there's one thing that you can do as well, which is pretty interesting, um, which is that if, if you don't want to pass somebody by and say and give nothing, ask a homeless person for something and ask yourself, why do I need this person? How do I need this person? And maybe you ask that person for a piece of advice. <laughs> maybe you, directions, life advice, something's on my mind, what would you do? Maybe you ask that person for a prayer on your behalf. But in so doing, what have you done? You've given that person dignity, and ultimately this is what we all need, and this is what every single one of us deserves, because we're all equal, and we're all 
possessing and should be cognizant of our, the radical equality of our human dignity. And that's one way that you can bring something that's as valuable or more so. Just, or, I've always been impressed by the people who just stop and hang out and talk to that, that somebody who's homeless. They just sit and talk to them. There's no actually transaction. They just sit and talk and make it's, it's, it's dignity. Mm -hmm. I'm not looking down upon you. I'm going to actually sit down next to you and just have a chat with you. Yeah. Next time something's wrong in your life, ask a homeless person for advice. Incredible. Um, you actually might get good advice. Yeah. So, okay, we, I, we've gone on to a, a tangent, and we right. could be here for an hour talking about philanthropy and street homelessness, but let's move on to the next. Let's move on to this side in the front, okay? So I'm going to talk, I'm just looking at you right here, okay? And we've got a mic coming to you. See, now this was charitable, by the way, because he gave his question away. <clears throat> he was hoping for a twofer, actually. I know, he was hoping for a twofer, <laughs> but it was... Uh, Hi, so you spoke earlier about this idealized world that you would hope to see, but what I'm curious about is the things that you would say are keeping that idealized world from being realized. Um, <laughs> that's funny. I actually, it's a hard question for me because I'm so focused on the things that are working. Um, you know, I, I like to joke that it's embarrassing that I have a career because I talk about trust and cooperation. There should be no demand for my work. But the fact that there is demand for my work means that people are asking about these things and curious about these things and want these things, which is a good thing. Um, I think the things that are holding us back are the things that I referred to before. I think incentive structures inside organizations incentivize behavior that is bad for us. Like, it's actually bad for our health and it's bad for the health of organizations. I think that um, the, the excessive pressures from outside forces, um, I think, are bad for us. Um, the lack of cause, the lack of, the lack of vision, you know, vision is not a 10-year plan to reach some uh, financial metric. That's not a vision, you know? The number of companies that keep telling me vision 2020 is this number. It's not a vision. Um, uh, uh, and I think there's just, a, a, I, go, I think it's what Arthur said it before. We, it's, it's a leadership crisis. We, we need more leaders. Like, just go back 20 or 30 years, right? And it, put your, it doesn't matter what your politics were, but just... You had, you had Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and Lech Walesa and Václav Havel and Mikhail Gorbachev, and whether you agree with them or disagree with them, they stood for things, and they rallied people across aisles, and they made us feel good and inspired, and they were willing to sacrifice, and more importantly, they, were, they, 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 they inspired other people to be willing to sacrifice. Name like a couple people, you know, in politics, that actually inspire us to want to sacrifice for a cause greater than ourselves, Sure, Oprah's great, but... She's not a politician she's not a, yet. You know, she's not a politician no, yet. No. And give me someone young, right? Not people in the... T like Warren Buffett. Yeah, he's going to die in a decade. And he's, he's not... At the, give me somebody young who's going to inspire us. Look at the time, folks. Yeah. The, 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 yeah. So, no, he, he's a great example. There's a lot of great examples, but they're old. Um, and we need... Who's rallying us? You know, where are we showing up? And we're showing up to causes, but there's nobody who's out there pioneering that cause, who's, who's giving a, a face to the cause. So my complaint is we need more leaders everywhere. And you don't have to run a company or run for office. You know, leadership can come at any level. It has nothing to do with rank. It's the choice to look after the person to the left of you and the choice to look after the person to the right of you and commit to seeing that those around you succeed. And we need more of that. Everyone in this room has a responsibility to be the leader you wish you had. And that's the thing that's getting in the way. Hmm. That's why companies need to teach leadership. They don't, you get a job somewhere when you're really junior and they give you tons of training how to do your job. 
and then they promote you, and they give you no training on how to lead others. No wonder we have no leaders. Who taught us? Nobody teaches us. Hmm. We're coming up here to the front uh, on the left. I'll give shorter answers. <laughs> well, we got a mic coming to you right now. <laughs> uh, my name is Joni. I'm thinking about your comment, or your wife's comment. At least we know he, he's not cheating. <laughs> there, <laughs> statistics data shows us the 70% of students are cheating now. Parents are cheating. They're writing their papers. They're editing their papers. Well, so much for that. Then. They're helping. <laughs> <laughs> they parents are saying, we, we, we finished our applications. We did this. We did that. This issue of integrity, mm. I think, which cuts through the why. Yeah. How do you apply the golden to issues? So for example, if you're running an organization or I run a school, and I see integrity mm -hmm. as a, a driving issue yeah. that impacts everything that the school is doing and the leaders are not yeah. facing this. How do you apply this to issues? Yeah, you wanna take a crack? Well, I wanna hear what you have to say, but I think it's actually worth pointing out that every single one of us can be more honest. Can be more, every single one of us shades the truth all the time. And there are lots of reasons to do it. One of it is to protect ourselves from harm one of the, the reasons that we do it is to get ahead, and what is just to say to protect our reputation, and sometimes is to protect others' feelings. Right? Those are the, kind of the three canonical reasons for shading the truth, right? There's a lot of research on lying, actually. And lying is common and is becoming more common, and particularly among young people that we find. The interesting and the alarming thing is they tend to justify lying as if they were protecting others when in point of fact they are protecting themselves. So well, here's what I recommend to all of us. We're talking about cheating. But thinking lying. about any dishonesty, thinking about something where you're bending the rules. When you've done that, why did you do that? And be honest with yourself, even before you're honest with others. Never shade the truth to protect yourself. And now, here's the, here's the goal. Go an hour without doing it. And then go a whole day without doing it. And you're going to pay a cost, by the way. You're gonna pay a cost when somebody asks you a difficult question and you don't wanna give the answer and you, you pretend that you're protecting somebody's feelings but you're actually trying to protect yourself <laughs> and your own reputation. But the dividends are huge with respect to your own integrity because a, a person who's more integrated is happier, is more joyful, has clearer vision. Simon? Um. <laughs> Simon, what do you think of my answer? <laughs> um. So the, more about integrity. More. integrity. So it goes, integrity. it goes to finite and infinite, right? Which is, which is, I'm playing by finite rules. My kid has to get into this school. My kid has to get this job. My kid has to get this. My kid has to get that. And I'll do whatever it takes to get them there. And that's they're playing by they're playing they're living life and manage worse. They're ma they're managing their kids' lives based on the finite rules. And the problem is, there is no winning. Exactly. And and the, we have this twisted concept in how we're managing our lives and helping our kids in terms of wins and losses. It's the short term. It's the short term. term. And, and, and we said it's pervasive. It's been building and building since the 80s and 90s. It's pervasive to the point now it's affecting parenting. Exactly. So, so, <laughs> so, so by, so if, if somebody learns leadership at work, right? And I, I the re, I'm actually not a business guy, but but like during the Great Depression, the unemployment rate was 25%. During the last recession, it was nine or 10, right? Good, uh, stable unemployment is four, four. Um, so what I hear 
is even when 25% don't have jobs, 75% do. So if you want to get to people, get them at work. And it's too hard to go to everybody's home and say, let's learn leadership. But if I can get companies to teach leadership, lots of people who work in companies are parents. And you learn skills like conflict resolution. You learn, you learn things like uh, effective communication. You learn things like um, effective confrontation. These are all skills that are parenting skills. So the belief is that if we build leaders in the most efficient way possible, which is at work, they become better parents. That's the belief. We're not teaching leadership at all. There's a book that just came out called The End of Loyalty, where companies are no longer loyal to people and people are no longer loyal to companies. Everything is about short-term, short-term, short-term. And unfortunately, that mentality now uh, pervades parenting. So we have to do the hard work. We've probably lost a generation. <laughs> but we have to do the hard work of going back to what it means to, to be a parent, which doesn't mean necessarily helping your kid get the job at any expense or get into the school at any cost. Hmm. Um, we've run out of our formal time, but Simon's so going to be outside is actually, yeah, because your babysitter is, uh, has to leave. Can we go a little but longer? We can, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to retire to the vestibule no, but here for a second, but I want to do one thing before we do. I want to sum up. I want to sum up three big lessons that we've learned here from talking to Simon. Okay? Number one, lesson number one is the secret to leadership. I mean, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of detail in here. But this, the one thing for you to remember about leadership is solidarity with others. The one thing for you to remember is to be a good leader is to be somebody who loves others and shows your love when you lead. If you lead, not necessarily with empathy, but with compassion to do what people actually need, to be honest to have integrity, and most importantly, to remember that you are them and they are you. That's the principle of solidarity-based leadership, and that's lesson number one. Do you know Laurie Robinson, General Laurie Robinson? I had to do. I've met her. Oh, yeah. she's the best. So there's a, a four-star general in the United States uh, Air Force who's the first female ever to be a combatant commander. She's in charge of NORTHCOM. She was just on the cover of Time Magazine a few, a few months ago. She's amazing. Laurie refers to all of those in her command, and she always has since she was, since she was younger refers to all of those in her command as my kids, regardless of their age. She always refers to my kids. She, in other words, she has that deep love of those in, who, are, who she has authority over, but she always refers to them as my kids. It's mm. kind of a magical thing. Mm. Lesson number two. <clears throat> Simon's not soft. He thinks fighting is good, and he thinks competition is good. The problem is fighting against things, raging against the world fighting against someone else, fighting against some other organization, some other party, some other company. Fighting is good when you're fighting for things. You're fighting for people. You're fighting for causes. So fight. Fight like crazy. But fight for people. Don't fight against things. Mm. Lesson number three <clears throat> is your why. And this is your money-back guarantee on being a happier person by tomorrow if you do the work. What's your why? Have you done your homework? Have you thought about your product today or your purpose? Have you thought about the value that you're offering to the rest of the world? And have you put it into words? Can you say it in 10 words or less about what your why is? If you can't, that's pretty normal. But you need to answer that question, and that's going to take the time to, to ask others, to consider it in the silence of your room to go to sleep for the next seven nights thinking about it. But here's the goal. 
before we get to February 1st. Know what it is. Know what your why is and make sure that the people that you love and the people that you lead, they know your why as well. That will give you purpose and it will give other people more meaning and joy and happiness and fulfillment in their lives, which ultimately is the why that we all should share. Ladies and gentlemen, Simon Sinek. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92iondemand.org.